So I was reading some articles this week, and I came across an interesting article, at least I thought it was interesting. It described the life of uh, Mrs. Hetty Green. Now, Hetty was a bit of an odd woman. She was a little bit different than you ladies in the church here. Um, you know, she actually ate cold oatmeal, and her reason for that was because it cost too much to heat it. And she smelled a little bit because she refused to pay the extra money for the hot water. And, uh, and one time, her poor son, he, his leg got uh, something happened to it, an infection or something, and she delayed going to the doctor because she didn't want to pay the money for the doctor bill. And, and so her poor son had his leg amputated and went around in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. But here's the really sad thing. When she died in 1916, so a little while ago, over 100 years ago, she left an estate valued at over $100 million. And now you might think, well, that's only $100 million. I don't know if, uh, you know, I can excuse her not paying her hot water bill. This is only $100 million. This is 100 years ago. That would be about $2.5 billion today. It's an awful lot of money. She was the richest woman on Wall Street, but as wealthy as she was, she cared so much about money that she lived like a poor person. She chose earthly treasure over everything, and her whole life revolved around money. And it really got me thinking, because here's this lady that has everything, but really she has nothing. And in contrast to Mrs. Hetty Green, the Christian really does have everything. Last week we learned that God has blessed us with something far better than $2 billion. Because of our relationship with Christ, we have everything that matters. Christ died, we talked about last week, so that we could have a relationship with Christ and have on a place in His family. He's granted us freedom from sin and forgiveness by His blood. Through Jesus, we've been given the down payment of the Holy Spirit. And a, the promise of a great inheritance to come. And all these things are far more than we deserve. And I want to suggest to you that there is one thing that every Christian continues to need. Every Christian who has been given so much in Christ. And that is to know God better. Paul has reminded us in the first part of his letter of the gifts that we have in Christ. But ultimately, he's pointing to the giver. In verse 3, he says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he prays in Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23, that we would not forget the giver. Praise that we would come to know God better. Because when it comes to knowing God in His fullness, 
There is so much more for us to know and understand and remember. We'll never exhaust all that there is, because He is infinite. Instead of living for the riches that money can buy, like Hetty, who poured her whole life into becoming rich, we can live for the riches that come with knowing God. He is the real treasure. And that is what Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23 is all about. So if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1, I'd like to begin reading verses 15 and 16. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul was hearing about their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. And so he gave thanks to God daily for the testimony of the Ephesian church. You know, I really had to sit back and think there. Am I the kind of person who really, truly believes in God? And loves not just some, but all the saints. And then I got thinking, how much am I like Paul, who thanked God for what he saw in the believers, you know? Not only did Paul thank God for their faith in God and their love for one another, but he praised something for them. This is what Paul desired for these people who who have a faith in God and who who love others, but there is something that they need that he so desperately wants for them. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We'll read uh, verse 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. When Paul prays for those who are his friends and family in Christ, what matters most is that God would give wisdom and revelation through the Holy Spirit in the knowledge of God. You know, Paul does not pray for wisdom and revelation about the future or or the particulars of life. Other places he prays that we would know God's will, we would know what God wants us to do. But here he's focused on the core of that. You want to know God's will for your life? You want to know what God has for you to do? You need to know the Lord himself. And so that is his prayer, that they would know God more deeply. In fact, when we read all of Paul's prayers, that's really kind of the most important thing to Paul. Timothy Keller wrote a book on prayer called Prayer Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. And he made this observation in his book. He says, it's remarkable that in all of his writings, 
Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. I'm going to read that again. It's remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends, people he loved dearly, contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. Why is that remarkable? Um, Just think about your own life and the dangers and hardships and troubles that we go through. And uh, I think it's safe to say that most of those believers in that time had lives a lot less secure than ours. We live in a pretty nice bubble in a way, safe from a lot of things. They faced persecution and war and famine and death by disease and separation from family. And we face many of those too. But not once did Paul pray for a better emperor or uh, for less suffering or even food on the table. Now, it's not wrong to pray for those things. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, protection from evil. Paul understood and knew that. Paul isn't saying, uh, no, you don't pray for those things. But when he prays, he prays about something that he saw as even more important. What did he think was the most important thing that God could give them? That was to know him better, to have a knowledge of him, a personal, real knowledge of him. The world, human wisdom tells us that we just need to know yourself better. But uh, the Bible tells us to know your God, to know your God through the Holy Spirit. Because it's only by the Spirit of God that we can know Him, you know, apart from His work. And that's what so much of The Bible, so much of Ephesians talks about how it is only through Christ, through the Spirit, we can know God. Is that the goal of your life? Jesus taught us in Matthew 6.33, He said, make the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God your aim. I'm paraphrasing. And all that you need will be provided by your gracious heavenly Father. The one thing we need most is to know God. And all those other things begin to fall in place. No matter what circumstances. Of course, it's easy to say. And I think that's why Paul gives some explanation of some of the things that he desires for them to know about God. Which we'll pick up in verse 18. He says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance In the saints. What does it mean to 
have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You know, enlightenment or this idea is not, uh, it's not about finding some new truth out there, searching long and wide, but it's really um, seeing the God who is truth, seeing the truth of God that is right there in front of us. And... Uh, Apart from the Spirit of God, there is no seeing. The natural state of man is blind. But because of Christ, our eyes are open. We could say like the blind man in, in John chapter 9, there's only one thing that I know. I was a blind man, but now I see. What does it mean to really see, to really know? I was going to quote Keller again. I like, I like a lot of what he says, but he uses big words, and I don't like that too much. So I'm going to try and give you a real-world example from high school. I hope it maybe makes a little sense. What does it mean to really know calculus, every student's favorite subject? What does it mean to really know calculus? Really knowing calculus um, doesn't isn't just memorizing formulas. It's not going to work. I've tried to do my due diligence with math, um, but I don't know. It just seems to me that the people that do good in math, well, first they persist at it, which is good, and and they do memorize these things and they don't give up. But they also they have a passion and a, they care about it. They see its usefulness for some reason. And so because they care, they would they maybe seek to know more. They're, they're interested. They want to know more about calculus. They might even actually fiddle around with it and open up their math homework on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. And now maybe you start to think to yourself and see why most of us really don't know calculus, right? We don't really know it because we d we're doing it because we have to a lot of the time. We don't really love it. We don't really care about it. Now, God is not calculus. God is a person. So much greater and better than calculus. To really see and know the truth about and of God is to care about God and to have it um, hit our heart and our mind so deeply that our attitudes and our actions begin to follow along. And so you don't really know or believe something about God if it's not impacting your heart and your attitude. That doesn't
give a uh, biblical example. I was thinking about Joseph. Who said to his brothers after he had been, they had thrown him and sent him off to be a slave. And uh, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's an example where he understood something and knew something about God. That God was good in spite of all the things that happened. When he was chucked in the well there, and then later he was put in prison. But he saw that God was good even in those circumstances. And I'm sure he looked back upon the dream that God had given him. And he looked back upon how God took him out of that well and and brought him to Egypt and gave him a place. And when he was in that prison there, he could know that God was good. Because he he knew God, the spirit of God had working in his heart so that he knew these things. And he lived then with forgiveness and faith. Because of that. I don't know if that makes any sense. It's a hard thing to wrap our minds around. But I hope that we can begin to see how really knowing God. Coming to know him in all areas. Just changes the way that we live our daily life. And that we would seek that because it's it. We could be like the the kid that doesn't really want to know calculus. We don't open up our math book. That's That's the aspect of where, what are we seeking? Do we really seek to know God? Now, what is it that Paul considers so important for us to see and know with our whole being? Well, he talks about three things, and so I want to briefly talk about them. And the first is found in verse 18, the hope to which we've been called. Now, real biblical hope isn't just a wishful thinking, but it's confidence based on who God is, based on his promises. Hope is the certainty that God's going to make true what he has said. And so it's a confidence that expects God to do as he promises. But how do we have this hope? And what is our hope in? It's based in the fact that he has called us. It's based in the fact, as we talked about last week, that he has called us, that he has adopted us into his family, that he has redeemed us, forgiven us, given us the Holy Spirit, all of these things to know and to dwell on them is to begin to understand hope. A hope that is not just for this life only, but also the life to come. And so Paul's prayer is that God, through his spirit, would help us to To see how certain 
and joyful a thing it is to hope in God. All other hopes that we could think of putting our hope in fail, but God does not fail. So the first thing Paul wants us to see is that we can hope in God, a sure and certain hope. And secondly, the, he talks about the wealth of his glorious inheritance. What does that mean? Well, first of all, notice that this inheritance is his, that it, his is God, so it belongs to God. And we, as the saints, belong to God. He gives us a wonderful share in, an inheritance in what belongs to him in eternity. What do we dream about? What do you dream about? And I don't mean in your nightmares or, or the silly dream you had last night that you just go, what, what on earth did I eat last night? What do you daydream about? It's like you can't, your mind wanders and you're just, oh, I can't wait until, you know, that weekend off or can't wait till I can go on vacation, see my family. Can't wait for that retirement in BC or when I can leave home and make my own way in the world and and just uh, have this dream job. Could be many things. Can't wait till I get home to that nice dinner. You know, there's just so many things that we think about, but we're, we're thinking on terms of the earth and and I'm thinking that way too. I'm thinking, oh, you know, I really love serving God and working on my sermon, but I can't wait till I have my evening off, you know? Instead of looking beyond to eternity where the wealth of this inheritance is, and it's really, Paul wants us to see, not just that we have hope in God, but that uh, the real wealth is in knowing God. God is the real treasure. Today and one day for all eternity. God is our hope. And God is the true treasure to seek. And the last thing in verses 19 to the end is uh, his incomparably great power toward those of us who believe. Let's read verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might? Isn't that amazing? God's power is described here as above and beyond, grander and more capable than any other power. We think of the powers of this world. Well, that's nothing. God says that uh, kings' hearts are like a stream of water through his hand. These uh, powers of this world. His power is active. 
here. What he sets out to do is, is accomplished. And this power of God is at work not just in moments of belief, but in those who believe. In those in who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's power is at work even when His children doubt Him. I love 1 John 3.20, which, which reminds us when our heart condemns us, which it often does. My heart is often condemned by the things that I see and do, but what does Romans 8 tell us? That there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And so... 1 John 3.20 tells us God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. He knows and keeps His own. God is power. And His power is at work in the lives of all His children. It's very important for us to know and understand, isn't it? Something we quickly lose sight of. And so Paul prays we would know and understand this from the very core of our being. And he goes on, because this is so important, to describe God's power at work. And how is God's power at work? Ultimately, it's at work in Jesus Christ. Verse 20 to 23 this power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. God's power is most greatly demonstrated in raising Jesus up from the dead and seating Him at His right hand. Can there possibly be a greater display of the power of God? The Red Sea is kind of like peanuts to, the, to this. That the, the Son of God be raised in incorruptible glory. And here's the wonderful thing to me when I think about this. Ephesians 2, you know, they didn't have chapter divisions. It really flows in. And uh, Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead, but we were made alive together with Christ even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are seated with Him. And so, because of our relationship with the Lord, we have a share in and get to experience the benefits of the power of God at work in our lives. Can't think of anything more amazing than, than to think about and to know that. We also 
very clearly see the supremacy of Christ. He is greater, he is higher than every kind of power. At present and in the future. What kind of powers is uh, this talking about? Well, I think that I believe that evil spiritual powers seem especially in view here. As we continue on in the letter, it talks about the spirit who is at work and the sons of disobedience. And then in chapter 6, we very clearly see the our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces at work in this world. I think it becomes clear that that's what what is being talked about. But here's the thing. The exact identity of these rulers and authorities and powers and dominions and names is really quite beside the point. That's not the point. The point is that Christ is over all powers. No matter what kind, what sort, however great. The Bible has little interest in these powers except to say they've been defeated. So what Colossians is so wonderfully tells us in chapter 2, verse 15, where it says that on the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over them in Him. That's what we're told about these powers. Christ has defeated them. Here in Ephesians, the supreme demonstration of His power is seen in the resurrection. Understanding the power of God is really, it's like the foundation upon upon which we have knowing the hope of our calling and the riches we've been given. After all, if God is not a God of power, if Christ has not been raised, then his promises are nothing more than empty words. And so we don't have any hope and we don't have any riches or inheritance. Um, But thankfully, that is not true. Nothing could be farther from the truth. For God has put all things under the feet of Christ. Christ already rules over all. God has never lost control. And so we do have hope. And we can have hope. And enjoy the wonderful treasure of knowing God. In the present, the control of God over all things doesn't seem very obvious to most of us. There are many times that it is hard to trust when we look at the different things going on around us. This is why really knowing God and His power, His authority and His love is so important. Because if we look at this world, we will not have hope. We will not understand the power of God. And yet he reigns. 
And when he returns, the rule and authority of Christ will be made very obvious to all. There will be no holding back on that day. And all will be judged with righteousness. Notice in, uh, I believe it is verse um, 22, it, it says that Christ is the head of all. And then it goes on to say that he is given to us, the, the church. Have you ever thought that we are in a position of great privilege? Because Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, is our head. Colossians 2, 9 and 12 uh, talks about God and how in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then it says, You have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. goes on to say in 12, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so what Paul is talking about in Colossians 2, 9-12, and here in the end of Ephesians chapter 1, is this wonderful idea that we, the body of Christ, are intimately connected with the one who embodies who communicates the very fullness of God. In other words, in our position, we are so privileged because of our relationship with the Lord. Ephesians 4 is going to go on and talk about how we're growing up in this fullness to, to a mature manhood in Christ. And so we see, you know, talking about this fullness and stuff, some people have said that, that, that this is talking about humanity becoming divine in our connection with God. Well, that's not what this is talking about at all. Christ is uniquely God. There is no other human being that can claim or attain that. And yet, in our relationship with the Lord, we do have a share in many things. We have a share in glory. We have a share in uh, becoming like Him in uh, a body, a resurrection body. And, uh, and so uh, it's important, I think, that we don't lose sight of how wonderful it is the relationship that we have um, in Christ. So there are three things God wants us to know about himself. That we would know the hope of his calling, the wealth of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power. As I've said already, all of these things really are about knowing God. Nobody can, you can't just sort of separate the hope 
to which you've been called. The wealth of whose inheritance? His inheritance. The greatness of whose power? His power. From himself. It's not possible. But so often we're trying to do that. We, we want what he offers without himself. We want what he offers in ourselves and not in him. But he is our hope. He is our inheritance. There's nothing greater, more important, or infinite than God. And that is why Paul prays for us to know these things more deeply. This is the real treasure. Perhaps you wonder, why would Paul ask for these things when he just said, we've got every spiritual blessing? Don't we already have it? Shouldn't it be just like, and then everything's good and happy and wonderful? Well, it's a fair question. Let me put it this way. This isn't a prayer asking for more. We have been given every spiritual blessing. But it is an asking that we would know what we have. Even more than that, that we would not forget the giver of those gifts. This prayer will be answered in Christ. God wants you to know him. But it has to be asked. And there are many Christians, my own life is often a very sad example of James chapter 4, verse 2, where he where says, you have not because you ask not. Often we don't have a very deep understanding of real hope, real eternal treasure, real power, because we're not asking for it. In effect, this is like a child of the king uh, going off and living in poverty because they won't go to their father and say, Father, would you give me, you know, when Jesus tells us that God is like a father who gives good gifts, who's gracious. And why is it that we don't ask? Well, James goes on to say that very thing. He says, because we are asking to spend it on our passions, our desires, our values, our priorities have become warped. They are self-focused. And so sometimes it could be like the child forgetting. You know, you get a little lost and you're on your own little world. But many times it's that we're choosing we would rather play in the mud than live in the palace. We're choosing to, so often, by what we say and do, not come to the Lord. And Paul doesn't want that. Praise that we would know Him better, know the Lord better. We would value Him above all. May that be our daily prayer, that we want to know Him. This is really a question of the heart of what do do you desire most? And the question I'd like to ask you is, is to consider, is my first priority to pray that I would know God better? 
or that it is always my own needs and desires. And Roy, Roy talked about confessing something, and that's something I would like to confess about this very morning. The first things I was praying about was related to Sunday morning, you know. And uh, things would go well, and I'd remember not get all distracted or whatever and be a good speaker or something. I want the Lord to use me, but my first prayer was not that I would know the Lord. And that I would know these very things that Paul is asking of us. So consider that. Is my first priority to pray that I would know God better? Or is it my own needs and desires? And also when I pray for others, and this is something I also see in my life. Paul is praying for, for his friends, for those who are his family in Christ. What do I pray about most for other people? Because there is something more important than their daily needs for food and health and safety and all these good things. And it's that they would know God. So many people we pray for don't know God, but we're praying about their health. And, and that's important. I mean, don't want people to die before they know the Lord. That they would know God. Or know him better. Putting it very uh, simply, Paul is praying that we would know God in all his fullness, in all his goodness, in all his greatness. He is our hope, he is our treasure, and he is able. So we don't want to be like Hetty Green who wasted her life in the trivial pursuit of money and this world's riches. Seek the real treasure found in God himself. My prayer is that we would be children who want our Father more than his gifts. And that we would turn to our Father for a real hope and treasure and power. Make him the one thing that we see. The one thing that every Christian needs most is to know God better. Okay.